0: Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So today we are beginning a new sermon series together called Your Failure is Not Final. And we're going to be spending a couple weeks going through a parable together and talking about failure. And the reason that we're talking about this together is this simple fact of life is that failure is unavoidable at some point in our lives, we are all going to experience failure, whether that's something personally, whether that's something that happens in your family, whether that's a work-related thing, or maybe it's a different part of your life. But failure is something that even though we don't like it, Failure happens to all of us at some point in our lives. And so we're gonna spend some time digging into this together. Now I wanna I wanna start with kind of two disclaimers to start at the beginning of this. And the first is is that simply listening to a message series about failure is not going to solve every problem you ever meet. In fact, this is really just gonna start some conversations. And these are conversations that I hope you will have maybe with your spouse, with your family, with friends, maybe in a life. But secondly, sometimes when we experience failure, when we experience things that come from failure like grief and sorrow, those are things that we actually need to sit down with a counselor and talk through. And so I am not assuming or presuming that what I say would replace the work of a good counselor. And so we actually, after the service, if you swing by our connect table, we have some cards sitting there if you want to pick up a list of counselors that are available in town. And if that's something we just want to provide as a resource for you to be able to know where to access, when someone could sit down with you one-on-one, and work through some of these things. Because failure often leads to something. And if failure is unavoidable, what it often leads to is feelings of grief, feelings of loss, feelings of sorrow. And what do we do with that? What do we do when we have those emotions? And our default, what we tend to normally do, and and maybe you're the same as me on this, our default response is usually denial. We actually would rather push aside and ignore and say, "No, that's not affecting me right now." You know, just think about this for a moment. How many of you have a to-do list, and how many of you have something on that to-do list that's been there for a really long time? And it's that thing on your to-do list that every time you open it, whether it's like an app on your phone or it's an actual like paper to-do list, you just hope before you open it up, maybe it'll be gone this time, maybe it'll disappear. Maybe there's that file sitting on your desk at work that's just been sitting there and sitting there and sitting there and you just hope that somehow it'll just disappear into thin air and someone else will take care of it. Because sometimes when we are in denial about something, we just want it to disappear. And when we make a mistake, maybe it's a mistake at work, our instinct is I just want to cover this up and let no one discover that I made a mistake. But when we hide from our failure... We actually allow our failure to trap us. We actually let it become something that sits on us and traps us and holds us there, and we can't get past it because it traps us in that way. And so that's what we're going to do in this series, is we're going to spend four weeks looking at failure, looking at what do we do when we fail or when something like this happens to us, how do we actually move forward beyond that so that we're not trapped by it, so that we're not stuck in a place of denial, But what do we do about that? And we're going to frame this whole series by looking at a parable together. And a parable is a story with an impact. It's a story with a meaning. And Jesus often taught in parables because parables have this way of sometimes going around the rational side of our brain and actually affecting our kind of emotional intelligence in a way. Jesus was very masterful when he told parables because he was able to say things that people would just reject if he said it plainly. But in a parable, it gets around at us, and it sits with us, and it dwells with us, and it invites the listener, that's us today, to look at these parables and say, well, where would we be in them? Where does our own lives reflect what's going on in this? So I want to frame the parable that we're going to dig into by this way. We're going to be spending some time in in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life in Scripture. And Luke premises these parables with this passage from Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. that says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to hear Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he, Jesus, was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. What Jesus did was considered scandalous in the first century Judea because a rabbi, a teacher of the Jewish law, you didn't go and sit with the tax collectors. Now, tax collectors back then was very different than a CRA employee today. I'm not not bashing CRA employees at all. See, tax collectors back then were essentially organized, government-sanctioned mafia, because a tax collector would buy a contract to say, I'll collect taxes from this area, and Rome would say, okay, every month or every quarter, you need to bring us this much money, and that's all Rome cared about. So a tax collector got paid by raising more taxes and just taking whatever was above what they had to pay to Rome. It was government-sanctioned mafia. So Jesus, these are the people he went to. In fact, one of his disciples was a tax collector, one of his closest 12. And and the religious leaders got more and more upset because Jesus kept doing these things. And they were looking for a way to trap Jesus. And eventually they would use all these things and they would build false charges against him to end up putting Jesus on trial. And so when they come to Jesus one of these times... And they're challenging Jesus over this. Jesus responds, and he tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, a parable of a lost coin, and then the parable we're going to talk about today and through this series called the parable of the lost son. And so instead of Jesus saying, well, this is why outright, he tells these three stories. And so the third story starts this way. Jesus says to them, a man had two sons, The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, a little piece of Jewish law that we sometimes don't know is when it came to dividing up the inheritance amongst the sons of a family, the oldest son always received a double portion because the oldest son had the responsibility of caring for the parents when they could no longer care for themselves. So the younger son is asking for one third of his father's estate, not actually half. Now, the scandalous part and where everyone would be scratching their heads is the father agreed to do this. To give his younger son one-third of his wealth. So maybe he had to sell land, he had to sell livestock, he had to liquidate his assets, and then he gives his younger son one-third of his wealth. Now when the younger son goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now, what he's really saying to his dad is this, you're worth more to me dead than you are alive. Because all you're worth to me right now is this one third of your wealth that I'm going to get later. But I'm impatient. I don't want to wait for it. I want it now. And in this parable, the father agrees. So he gives his younger son one third of his money. And then Jesus goes on. He says a few days later. So once once he had gotten the money, the younger son packed all his belongings, moved into a distant land, and there he wasted his money in wild living. He took all his money and went to Vegas burned through it all, had a good time, wasted it away. And then here's what happens next. This is where the parable starts getting interesting. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. And so he persuades a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now these seed pods from that area... And the way it's described in the original Greek would be carob seed pods. And so when it says he was sent into the field, he had to go and harvest these seed pods off the trees where they'd grow, and then he'd have to bring them to the pigs and feed them to the pigs. And carob seed pods, the reason why we don't know of them really that much, even though there's still a crop that exists in the Mediterranean basin is they're not really a good food source. They're kind of like this is the lowest of the low type of food that you use in a famine to feed your livestock. It doesn't have a lot of purpose to it. It's not very nutritious. It's not very good. And so this young man is going and harvesting these seed pods. He'd have to crush and grind them, feed them to the pigs, and he's looking at this this flowery paste that they would turn into and saying, you know, that looks better than what I'm eating. I'm so hungry. I want to eat what the pigs have. Now, what happened was between the younger son's choices. Now, we tend to think, oh, it was the fault of the younger son. He took the money and he wasted it away. And in fact, we ignore there's a second piece of this because it's between the choices and the famine that the younger son lost his family, his money, and his dignity. If the famine hadn't hit, maybe he could have found a job. Maybe he could have worked back from nothing. Maybe he would have came to his senses. But it's these two things happen at once. He wasted his money. The famine hits. And so he loses his family. Remember, he told his dad, you're better off to me dead than alive. He's lost all his money. He wasted it away in Vegas. And then he lost his dignity because here he is feeding pigs. And now for a Jewish boy, pigs are an unclean animal. You don't associate with them. You don't eat them. You don't raise them. You don't do anything. And so maybe, this isn't in the parable, but maybe he was even losing his faith. He was losing his identity as a Jewish person, as a a descendant of Israel, he was losing that peace. And so this is the moment in the parable where the story arc is at its lowest. And when we read these parables, we often really want to get to the next verse. Because in the next verse, as it gets to the point where it says, and no one gave him anything. Well, we know the next verse, Jesus is going to turn this around. We know in the next verse, the story arc is going to start swinging upward. And so we're not going to go to the next verse today. We're going to stay here in this part where the parable's at its lowest and say, well, what do we do then? What happens when we find ourselves in that situation where we feel at the bottom of that story arc, like the, the failure that's happened, the grief that it's caused, maybe the suffering that we feel is at its greatest depth? And when we have these experiences, when we fail about something, we often ask ourselves this question. We say, what happened? What happened that got me to this point? And we can look at this parable, we can say, well, you took the money and you used it poorly and then the famine hit. And the only job you could take was feeding pigs. And oftentimes the what happened question digs into the mechanics of the situation. If you think about, you know, I had this this time when I was I was doing an oil change on my car. And on my car, the oil filter is kind of on the top front of the block. And so when you take the oil filter off, it always dumps oil down the front of the engine block. And so I'd stuffed some rags there preemptively to catch that oil as it came off. Because, you know, I'm going to be smart. I'm not going to let oil just drip wildly because that's not good for the environment. It's not good for my driveway. And so when I put the new oil filter on, I didn't remove those... Little bits, those rags that I'd stuck under the oil filter, and so what happened was this little bit of the rag got caught underneath the oil filter, and so the oil filter wasn't seated against the engine block. And so when I started my car, guess what happened? Suddenly I have an oil fountain underneath the hood of my car, and I shut the car off really fast, and was this oh no, what did I do? And I'm looking at it like what went wrong, and I'm standing there as oil's just dripping all over my driveway, and every day now, well, not now, it's covered in snow, so I get to ignore it this time of year, but there's this nice darker patch of asphalt that is just the reminder every time I walk by it about that little piece of rag that was stuck under the oil filter. See, when we ask what happened, we get to the mechanics of it. What happened was I didn't remove that rag, small little thing. But then the other question we ask, and this is the one that we're going to dwell on today, why did it happen? That's the part where we turn inwards and you think to yourself, Brian, you dummy, you didn't think to remove that rag. This is the piece where our inner critic becomes the loudest voice in the room. This is the point where we start looking at it and we say, well, why did this happen? What went wrong? And sometimes, depending what it is, now it's an oil filter, that's a small thing, but sometimes when we experience something bigger, maybe it's the loss of a job, maybe it's the loss of a loved one, Maybe it's something bigger than that, something, it's a diagnosis you weren't expecting and we feel grief over it and we say, well, why did this happen? But one of the things that we can allow to happen in this moment is that when we experience failure and suffering and grief or loss, it can lead to questions about God. Now, an oil filter, that wouldn't lead to it. But when you lose a loved one and you find yourself saying, God, why did this happen? Why did this person have to die? Why did this relationship come to an end? And sometimes we're sitting there stuck and we say, God, how did you al- why did you allow this or why did you cause this? Now, when those questions come up, we sometimes feel like we shouldn't ask them. I actually think the other way around. I think we should ask these questions because when we ask earnest and honest questions of God, it leads us closer to him. When we ask these questions earnestly, when we dig into them, when we look at them, this can actually lead us deeper towards God. It's when we take the questions we have and we shove them away and we hide them that we don't engage with them. That's when we move to that place of denial that I I hope we all agree we don't want to stay in a place of denial. And so what do we do with these questions? What do we do when we have questions that revolve around failure and suffering and grief and loss? And one of the things that I want to do, and we're going to turn to now, is we're going to look at a a bigger narrative within Scripture. Oftentimes we look at passages and we look at how they're connected, but today we're going to look at this larger narrative throughout the Old Testament of Scripture because failure, suffering, and grief are repeated themes that happen through the whole of the Old Testament And so if we go back to the very first book of the Bible, back to Genesis, the first 11 chapters are the Israelite stories of this is where we came from. It's the premise, it's the prologue that sets everything up. But the narrative of Israel, the story begins in Genesis 12, when God picks this guy named Abram, who later he renames Abraham, and he says this to him, and this is the beginning of the the narrative portion of the Old Testament... The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land I will show you. Now there's a parallel to that parable, isn't there? Because that younger son later on in the parable Jesus speaks of, he leaves his family, he leaves his relatives, he leaves his land and he goes off, but he does it under a different motivation. Because in this one, in Genesis 12, God tells Abram, this is your instruction. Leave this. Leave everything you know. And then there's a promise. And the promise comes in the next two verses. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, Abram's already old at this point, and he has no kids. He has no next generation. And so when God says, you're going to become a great nation, he goes on later to say, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham just keeps coming back to, but I got no kids. My wife is barren. We've never had anything happen. And so what happens is Abraham finally only has one son. And then Abraham has a son and who has two kids. Not much of a great nation. But one of those sons then has 12 kids. He has a much bigger family. And Abram's great grandson, named Joseph, is the youngest of the sons. And he gets sold into slavery. His brothers dislike him that much that they put him in a pit and then they sell him to slave traders to get rid of him. They go back, they tell your father, your son's been killed. And meanwhile, Joseph ends up being traded away and ends up in Egypt where God meets with him and gives him this ability to interpret dreams. And through events that God orchestrates, Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And he has this promise from God. There's this dream that he interprets that there's going to be seven years of of bountiful harvests and then seven years of famine where everyone is going to starve. And so Egypt, because Joseph is second in command, stocks up food and they have food. No one else does. And so when the famine hits, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to try and buy food. And they don't recognize that it's Joseph who they're speaking to. And so Joseph eventually reveals who he is and invites all his siblings and his father to come to Egypt and to live there where there is food. And in Egypt, the Israelites grow in number. But over time, the Pharaoh changes And and they look at this group of these Hebrew Israelites and they say, we got to do something about this. They're going to outnumber us. So they enslave the Israelites. And this time of the first exile begins and the Israelites become slaves to Egypt. And they are an oppressed people. They don't know what to do. They don't have an identity of their own. Their identity is given to them by Egypt, which is you make bricks and you work for us. But the people cry out to God, and God chooses this man named Moses to come and to lead the people out. And so there's the whole thing with the 10 plagues, and there's the first Passover, this moment where God strikes down the firstborn of every household in Egypt to demonstrate that he is more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods. In fact, each of the plagues systematically cuts down each of the Egyptian deities that they believed in. And so God sends Moses to rescue the people and he leads them out of Egypt and into the desert. But they don't know how to be a people. They've been slaves their whole lives and so Moses leads them to Mount Sinai and God gives them the law and the point of the law was to give them their identity. But the people that left Egypt didn't get to go all the way to the promised land. The people who left Egypt actually had to go through a whole generation turnover and it was the next generation that would finally get to enter into the promised land. But the law formed the people's identity. The law of Moses that was given to them sets this is who you are as a people group. This is the beginning of that nation forming. But the law was only meant to hold them together for a time period because we know the rest of the story now. We know what comes to the end, that one day God would send his anointed Messiah, but that part of the story doesn't happen yet. In fact, when the Israelites reach the promised land, this fertile piece of the Mediterranean basin where they're supposed to set up and take over this land and this is going to be their special place to live, they fail to secure it from the nations that are around them. They fail to actually drive out the nations and to set up their nation the way that the law described And so it leads into this series in the book of Judges where there's seven cycles of oppression where the Israelites get taken over by a different nation, and then God raises up someone to respond, they drive out the invading forces, and then they fall back into sin. And so there's seven cycles of failure that happens after they've failed to fully secure the land. And then the people come to God and they say, but we want a king. You know, all these other nations around us have kings that lead their people, that lead their armies into battle, but but we have this law, we have this book, we have these rules, and the law was meant to give them their identity, but they said, we want something more than that. So God says, all right, I'll give you what you want. And he gives them a king who gets chosen purely for his appearance. Saul becomes the king of Israel because he looks like the kind of person that should be a king. He's tall, handsome. They're like, that's who we'll follow. (laughs) Great qualities of leadership there. But Saul, because he didn't have the character to be king, he wasn't a good king. In fact, the mistakes that he made caused God to remove the anointing from Saul. And the prophet Samuel goes and finds this young shepherd boy named David, and he gives David the anointing to be king. The youngest son in the family that is the smallest and most insignificant tribe of Israel is who God selects to be the next king. And shortly after this is when David goes to visit his brothers at the battle, and, and David kills Goliath in battle because he knows God's on his side. And so David kills Goliath with a sling, which was actually the most brilliant tactical advantage you could ever do. You don't fight a giant in hand to hand combat. You used a ranged weapon, it was brilliant. But in all these things, when David does that, it cements his identity with the people as wow, this guy's someone to watch. He knows what's going on. And Saul is threatened by David, and so he persecutes David. And there's this time period where David is running for his life constantly. And in fact, the book of Psalms, the whole first third of it is written by David and they are Psalms of lament. They are Psalms where David is pouring out his heart about the grief and the sorrow he feels. He writes constantly about how my enemies are pressing in on me. Their arrows are near to me. I have no way out. And he keeps pouring out his grief in these Psalms. But in each of the psalms. He chooses to still say, but I'm still going to worship you because you know more than me. You know this plan. You know what's going on. So even though Saul is persecuting David, he always looks towards God. And so eventually Saul dies and falls in battle. And David becomes king. But then David commits adultery. He takes a woman to be his wife who's married to another man and, and when this is found out, he goes and he has her husband killed and he claims, well, uh, let's put him at the front lines of the battle where he's going to fall and David orchestrates Uriah's death so that then he can take the widow as his wife and somehow try to absolve it. But because of David's failure, the baby that was the result of his adultery dies and Saul, David is left with his deep grief and God tells David, you don't get to build my temple because of that. And so David is left with this moment of sorrow. of oh, He doesn't get to do for God what he had wanted to do. And so David's son Solomon becomes king. But Solomon failed to set a successor. He failed to make a strong successor to follow him. And so after Solomon's reign as king, when the temple is built the nation has a civil war and splits in two. Israel becomes the north and Judah becomes the south. And this civil war that erupted that splits them is then why we start using a different term for the Israelite people when we talk about the people of Judah, the Jewish people, are the people that are descendant from that southern kingdom. See, all through their history it's these moments of deep failure. There's moments of highlight where the people turn towards God, but then moments of deep sorrow. And they only get worse because in 722 BC, Israel gets conquered by Assyria, and the nation is no more. And then later, about 150-ish some years later, Judah gets conquered by Babylon in 587, and the temple and the city are completely destroyed, completely wiped out. So what about that promise that God made Abraham? He gave him a promise that the whole earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants, yet the entire story of the Israelites is suffering, grief, and loss. This is generational history of suffering and grief and loss. So what did they do with their grief? How did the Israelites view their suffering when these things happened? What they did was remarkable because they didn't deny it. They didn't push it away. In fact, what the Israelites do is they embrace suffering as part of life and they express their grief through prayers and songs. In fact, this is something that that today, maybe it's our Western sensibilities, uh, maybe it's the way our culture is today. I don't know exactly what gets to the core of it. But we would always rather take our grief and our sorrow and hide it. We would always rather take our... (laughs) weeping our laments, and we would rather just hold them internally and bottle them up and somehow set them aside. And we even have that phrase, we say, well, time heals all wounds, and, and time is part of it, but time doesn't heal it. Time just lets us forget it until something reminds us of it later. Time doesn't alone heal all things. But what the Israelites do is they have this tradition. They have this practice of Lament. And a lament is a cry of anguish, a cry of grief, a cry of sorrow. It's taking what you're feeling and exposing it and let it see the daylight. In fact, when we look at scripture, we actually see more laments than praise songs throughout the old, entire Old Testament. And In fact, there's an entire book called Lamentations. It's the laments of one of the prophets, and we don't even know which prophet wrote this, but it's the laments that were written after the fall of Judea when the temple and Jerusalem have been completely destroyed. And this is how he begins this five-chapter book of crying out his sorrows. He says, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits there like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave." She sobs through the night, tears stream down her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one left to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her and have become her enemies. And this goes on and on. And it is depressing to read. Because what we are seeing is we are seeing the most authentic and the most raw cries of anguish that the human soul is capable of and for us we try to deny and hide that often but what happens when we deny ourselves the ability to grieve is we actually prevent god from meeting us in our sorrow because this is the part of the stories that i didn't tell you because the part of the story is that after each one of those failures there is times when god sends a prophet There is time when the people come back to the law, when they come back to realizing who God is, when they come back to him over and over. And God keeps telling them, your story is not over. Remember the promise of Abraham. This is temporary. The anguish that you feel will not last forever. The problem is, is we want to shortcut that and just skip past the pain that we feel but the Israelites would dwell in it to let themselves feel what they feel because there was this promise that kept getting repeated over and over and over again, is that one day a faithful remnant would inherit that promise of Abraham. And God even gave them a taste of this because in 516 BC, Persia had taken over Babylon and was now the new superpower on the block. And they allowed a remnant of Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, beginning the second temple period. And God did this to give them a taste of what was yet to come, to give them hope to say, even though you are in sorrow now, my story is not finished. And later on, when we come to the New Testament, when we go past the stories of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament John, one of Jesus' disciples, near the end of his life, is trying to write this book to explain who Jesus is so that it's preserved for future generations. And he begins it with this prologue, this how do you set up the story that is so incredible that people want to disbelieve it? Because you think, how could this guy named Jesus really live? And so John frames his gospel with this. He says, for the law was given through Moses. But God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Under the law, the people still experience sorrow and suffering. And even under the new covenant that Jesus came to make with us, with people, there is still suffering, there is still grief, there is still sorrow. But we now get to see God's unfailing love and faithfulness with a clarity that the Israelites never got to see. We got to see it because of who Jesus is. And one of the times when Jesus had a large crowd following him and he started this long teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount, he began it this way with these statements of blessing. of saying these are the people who God blesses. And in Matthew 5 verse 3, he says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs when we realize our need in our grief, when we realize our need for Christ, God promises that the kingdom of heaven will be yours, that God's presence will be yours. And the next verse that Jesus says, the next line says, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, when you fail, I want to encourage you to let yourself grieve. This goes against Our sensibilities. This goes against our natural desires to deny or hide or push it aside. But when we allow ourselves to grieve, when we allow ourselves to feel what we feel in the moments of our failure, God can meet us in incredible ways. Are you willing to let Jesus meet you in the midst of your grief? We're going to end the service a little differently than we normally do. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And they're going to lead us in another song. But this is a song that I want to invite you just to sit and think about. Uh, We're not going to ask you to stand or sing along. The lyrics will be on the screens. But are we willing to let God meet us when we experience sorrow? And I don't know each of your individual stories. I don't know what you're facing, what you're battling, what you're struggling through right now. Or maybe it's something in the past that's coming up. Maybe there's a memory of an experience or maybe it's someone that you lost, that you love, that you're still, you long for them to be there. I want to invite you to take a moment and think about that and think about what Jesus promises, that no matter what, your story is not over. That blessing of Abraham carries forward to us today the faithful remnant of, is those who put their trust in Jesus. So I want to invite you, as the band leads us, just to sit and think and reflect for a moment. Are you willing to let Jesus meet you? There's a line in the song that I just want to speak on for a moment where it says, what's true in the light is still true in the dark. And sometimes when we're in the dark, when we're in the midst of our grief and our sorrow, we can forget that what's true about God is still true when we're in that moment. And one of the promises of scripture that's repeated time and time again is that God is near to us. Even when we can't feel him, even when we can't seek him, when we can't see him close to us, if we seek him, we will realize that he is near to us. And so this week, are you willing to let Jesus meet you in your grief? And what do you need to do to let yourself grieve? Is this something that you've practiced? Is this something you've tried? But I want to encourage you that even though we may not be ending on the most encouraging of notes, but if you need to take some time to just sit and think, we're not going to play music afterwards. If you need some time to sit, to grab someone nearby you to pray with, I want to encourage you to do that. But this week, if you need to sit with someone and have a conversation and be willing to express This is where I'm at. This is what I feel. I want to encourage you to do that. Because your failure, your grief, your sorrow, your loss is not the end of the road. And next week, we'll start putting it all back together. So let me pray for us to close. Lord, we know that you draw near to us. And this week, as we reflect, as we think, or maybe it's sometime in the future, when we think back and we remember this, Lord, would you help us give ourselves permission to grieve? Would you help us give ourselves permission to feel what we feel and to turn those things and hand them to you? Lord, we know that your word calls us to cast everything upon you. Our prayers that are polite, but also our prayers that are angry, our prayers that are full of lament, that are full of sorrow. We know that you want to receive that all. And so, Lord, this week, would you help us cast those things upon you? In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.